This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. If you are listening to this podcast on the day of its release, October 19th, 2022, it is the birthday of Russell Kirk, and thus, Kirk Night. Kirk Night is properly celebrated with reading a ghostly tale, raising a toast, and eating a rich dessert. Ideally, this would also be done with like-minded friends. Also, on the day of this podcast's release, I am flying to Italy with my friend Tom Ruby to lead the first cultural debris excursions in Genoa. So Tom and I will be celebrating Kirk Night either in an airport or on a plane. Last week, I had the good pleasure to have an early Kirk Night dinner with my friends Gary Gregg and Sean Southard, with whom I have dined on the last two Kirk Nights. We were joined by George Nash, author of the conservative intellectual movement in America since 1945, an ideal dinner companion on such a night. I want to offer a special thanks to Lynn and Robert, both of whom recently became Patreon patrons of Cultural Debris. Their generosity is greatly appreciated and helps to pay the bills for things such as web hosting. If you would like to join Lynn and Robert as patrons, please visit patreon.com slash culturaldebris, and there is also a link in show notes. Our poem is October by Robert Frost. O hushed October morning mild, thy leaves have ripened to the fall. Tomorrow's wind, if it be wild, should waste them all. The crows above the forest call, tomorrow they may form and go. O hushed October morning mild, begin the hours of this day slow. Make the day seem to us less brief, hearts not averse to being beguiled. Beguileless in the way you know, release one leaf at break of day. At noon, release another leaf, one from our trees, one far away. Retard the sun with gentle mist, enchant the land with amethyst. Slow, slow, for the grape's sake, if they were all whose leaves already are burnt with frost, whose clustered fruit must else be lost, for the grape's sake along the wall. This episode's guest is someone I have known for over three decades now, and someone I have wanted to interview for a long while. Annette Kirk was kind enough to sit down with me to talk on a recent visit at Piety Hill in Macosta, Michigan, in the brick Italianate home that she and Russell Kirk built a half century ago. Annette talks about growing up on Long Island, her activist mother, being present in the early days of the conservative movement at William F. Buckley's home, and later meeting Russell Kirk. We discuss the culture shock of moving to rural Michigan, how their home became a magnet for refugees from around the world, and the work of the Kirk Center over the past 27 years. Plus, Annette tells the story of being kidnapped in her own car. Please join me as I talk with Annette Kirk. Have you had a good day? Yes, it's been a very good day because we are um, getting ready for a seminar here called Pillars, which is really based on Russell's book, The Roots of American Order. Mm -hmm. It's for teachers. And this is the second year we've had this uh, uh, seminar, and it lasts four days, and so it's very exciting. How many people? Uh, I think there's about 20-some, 20 25. Yeah. They, are they just from all over, all yes, over the country? Yes, from California to New York. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, different teachers. So uh, is it the same teachers that came last year, or no, just different no, ones? No, no, yeah. no. I think there's one, and that's because it's Gigi's father. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and he wants to come and visit the area. Right. And it's also helpful on occasion to have uh, someone from the past so he can remember right. what they spoke about and kind of... Uh, gear the uh, people in that direction if we go off course a little sure. bit. And uh, so that's very helpful. So who's guiding it? 
teaching it? I believe um, Jeff must be guiding okay. it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you right. know, we're in, we're in uh, transition right now sure. here. I was the uh, president of the Russell Kirk Center, and Jeff and I founded it in, in um, 1995, a year after Russell died. And so that we have worked together, he from afar, of course, mm -hmm. and I here. And so that anything to do with Macosta, I would ordinarily be the one that would know what is happening. But since this is the first summer when um, he is officially the CEO and executive director, and I am President Emerita, then the roles have changed and I am um, sort of just taking care essentially of the uh, Wilbur Fellows program, mm -hmm. the students who are and, and scholars who are living in-house and uh, I participate in all the programs right. and of course I um, communicate with people online who are asking me questions about Russell and also um, attend to a lot of guests who come all the time. Well, so I have my plate full. <laughs> you, you have lots of guests. So mm -hmm. just, just today, what, there are, I think, people five or now. six people, <laughs> not counting us, mm -hmm. who have come through right. just, just today. Some right. on their way out, yeah. some showing mm -hmm. up. It happens. We have the historic marker in front of the house right. at the well, moment, yes. and so people pull up all the time, right. and they assume it is a public place. Sometimes oh, they yeah. even have picnics on the lawn, oh. <laughs> and I'm always a little bit shocked when I see that happening, and, and uh, realizing that I, I feel that like it, Dr. Uh, <laughs> Kirk would appreciate people pulling oh, up and having a picnic was, on the lawn. He was very um, outgoing in that sense, uh, right. for you know, in, in inviting people in. Uh, rather to my surprise on occasion, right. uh, when I would be in the house and suddenly a flock of people would appear and he said, oh Annette, get tea, get... Uh, that happened just more recently actually when I looked out in a cold winter day with snowing on the ground, snow on the ground, and I found that there were uh, 10 um, uh, Asian people with children uh, in my yard and I wondered what they were doing here and it, it turns out that they knew about Russell through the translation of the Chinese edition oh, wow. of The Conservative Mind and Roots of American Order, and that they had been at Calvin in Grand Rapids for a while, and this was their last day uh, he'd been in residence there, and they decided, well, we have one more day, what would we like to do? We'd like to go to Macosta and meet Russell Kirk, whom they knew all about. Wow. And uh, they are part of the underground church in China. Wow, And uh, I was, I learned a lot, I was amazed. Uh, by this, and we invited them in, and three or four hours later, I think they took off, and you know, that was their last day. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously, just through these little incidents, it, this this house has has been, I guess, kind of a magnet for people from all over the world for mm -hmm. decades. Yes. Now. Yes. And. You housed a lot of refugees mm -hmm. over the years, right? Vietnamese refugees. Mm -hmm. um, we had some Cambodians. We had Ethiopians, Polish, and uh, Yugoslavian, and uh, just all kinds of other. You mentioned to me earlier from that fleeing that, from progress. <laughs> right, right, fleeing from progress. Right. Good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. uh, you you mentioned to me earlier that 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 was something your mother did in, yes. in Long Island. Yes. I came from a family that was very um, active in politics, in local politics, as well as state, and even um, on a national level, and so that uh, we were used to having lots of um, informal seminars, not through any organization, just my mother and my dad who helped with the printing press we had in the basement, and uh, so he was always printing up flyers that we were handing out at the subway uh, about events that she wanted to support or uh, petitions or anything. So I, I was used to that. And she, being in New York, it meant that there were a lot of refugees from communism there mm -hmm. uh, in the 50s and 60s. And uh, I remember in 1955 having a group of Hungarian freedom fighters uh, there for um, a, a supper one mm -hmm. night. And it was very exciting to hear their stories. And uh, then we had a Vietnamese priest um, who asked us if we would take a family after the fall of Vietnam, and we did uh, 10 Vietnamese um, for three years that we had. And uh, so that there were just all kinds of people from Russians and fleeing from communism mm -hmm. that uh, we had in the house, as well as my mom was very active in educational um, 
progress. She actually um, helped found a school for, uh, at that time for boys, uh, for vocational training. Oh. Not, none of us, all her four children, all went to college and uh, became professionals, but she thought that it was necessary to have some vocational training, and so she founded a school. It's still going today. It has about 2,000 students. It's called uh, Thomas Edison High School oh, wow. in New York. One of the many things that she did. Yeah. Another amusing thing is that she was able to get, uh, well, amusing in retrospect, uh, able to get uh, General Douglas MacArthur on the uh, primary ticket, Republican ticket, <laughs> in New York because, uh, you know, he came back and uh, he uh, was very popular at the time among certain people, of course. Uh, and I, we lived near uh, Kennedy, then called Idlewild Airport. And uh, I remember the night he came in and looking at a little television screen about eight inches uh, square, uh, brand new television in the 50s, uh, I guess that's when he came back. And uh, my mom was very keen on him. I'm not sure if today that she would have felt exactly the same. Sure. But at that time, he was a big hero, and she knew all his aides. And so she was the uh, one, the only one in the country who was able to get him on the ballot <laughs> in New York. And so I went around as a 10 or 12 years old, and I remember it was 52, I think, and went around uh, with her um, to these events, and I would stand up all the time before the crowds and recite a poem that I had done and had made up. And uh, the poem was, Old Soldiers, no, he said, Old Soldiers Never Die. Right. And um, so I recited a poem that, you know, I made up about him. I can't remember it now, but uh, uh, it was very amusing and, and everyone clapped. And <laughs> so that was my entry into performance. <laughs> well, it, and, uh, auspicious it was. Uh -huh. But, I mean, it sounds like... <clears throat> You, uh, you, you picked up a lot of the activities that your mom was involved with. Yes, I did. In your own life, because mm -hmm. you were, you've been very involved in education at a very mm -hmm. high level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and local, even a one-room schoolhouse. Right. And, of course, a school, <laughs> Restored a that. school yes. teacher. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but mm -hmm. also, from your earliest days, very active in politics. Mm-hmm and housing refugees. Yes, yes, exactly. But uh, I guess the, uh, my entry into real politics was uh, in 1960 uh, when we were all beginning to campaign for Goldwater mm -hmm. for the 64. And of course, I went that year to Sharon, Connecticut, to Buckley's home, which is called Great Elm. And there were 95 young men and five females, and I was one of the five females. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was the secretary of the Sharon Conference, which issued that report called uh, that statement called the Sharon Statement, mm -hmm. which actually was written by um, uh, Stan Evans, mm -hmm. uh, but um, we were all uh, enthusiastic about, he was such an articulate uh, journalist at the time, and so that uh, we were all enthusiastic about his coming to help us devise this. And it still stands up. When you read it today, uh, it's still um, uh, in, Good. It's just still. Yeah, I just good. read through it a few minutes really, ago. Really, really, yeah. it is. It's still good, uh, as opposed to the Port Huron statement, which was being written around that time. And the, both of those statements are in college textbooks now. And when you look at our one succinct page uh, Sharon statement, and then you contrast it with the Port Huron statement, which goes on for four or five pages and is rambling and uh, doesn't make too much sense. Uh, any, any intelligent uh, young student today would say that uh, this obviously was a much more logical uh, and preferred uh, statement. And that was the founding of the YAF. Young Americans for Freedom. Young Americans yes. for Freedom, which, which yes. has morphed into Young America's Foundation. Exactly. Right? But, young America's Foundation. But it still exists. Oh, yes. It still exists, and it also has uh, now the Reagan Ranch and uh, a whole center out there, and they every year have thousands of students that come. Mm -hmm. And I've been out there six years. We took the Kirk Center to the Reagan Ranch, and we taught the Roots of American Order, Russell's book, to the students at the ranch. I, I mean, I would think it would have to be pretty satisfying to see something that you had a hand in so long ago yes, yes. continuing on, having it such is, an impact. It is, but as the years went by, I morphed from being a much more policy-oriented political person mm -hmm. to um, uh, a much, and I was always interested in education, 
but to a person um, much more, um, I would say, meditative or reflective uh, because of the influence of Russell. Right. And uh, now with the Kirk Center, we try to keep above the political fray, the policy fray, and we try to uh, uh, pass on to the students who come here the idea that there are moral norms and that uh, uh, we like the phrase, then how shall we live, which mm -hmm. is what we try to um, talk to the students about, philosophy, theology, and some of the more deeper things. When I was on the um, National Commission on Excellence in Education, appointed by Governor, uh, now President then, uh, Reagan, um, I was a member of that 18-person uh, commission for three years. And uh, well, actually the commission was 18 months, and then uh, we started disseminating the program. So it was approximately around three years that I was involved with all that. And um, I, President Reagan wanted very much to get into that report uh, the, the idea that there were tuition tax credits and vouchers, mm -hmm. and uh, we hadn't even thought about charter schools at that time. This is 1983. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I wanted to get in there that, I, I couldn't get that in there. And it was just, even, even under Reagan, you couldn't get things like that, even on a commission like that with, with uh, you would think, appointees by Reagan right. people. But there were also people from the Department of Education and uh, from Harvard, a very distinguished man, but he was not conservative, but he was distinguished. And so that you couldn't get that type of thing in the report, and which is sort of amazing when you think about that. It really is. It yeah. is. And so what I decided to do instead was get the lines that parents are the first educators of their children, and they have a right and responsibility to participate in their education. And those, those are words that have been particularly important in recent years. Well, very much <laughs> important. And, and uh, so uh, another woman and I who were, I guess it can be told now, who uh, were working together on this. Uh, she was from uh, uh, California on the school board there. And uh, we went over as soon as we were able at the last hour of the last uh, meeting to get that in the report, much to the objection of some of the departments of education that did not want it in there. And so uh, we were lucky uh, to, to be able to do that. And uh, I, we went over to the White House where Ed Meese was at the time, and we told him about it. We say, now the president isn't going to like all the things that are in this report because it calls for more federal money for schools and uh, other overseeing of uh, administrative things that uh, would not be conducive to a conservative viewpoint. And so instead, um, I, we did get in there, however, that parents are the first educators. So it was very rewarding to find that the next day at the press conference, uh, that it, those are the words that the president used when he presented the report, mm -hmm. because he could see that there were other things in there that right. <laughs> he didn't particularly care for. And so that uh, he did recite that. And there was a man standing next to me that was on the commission, and he said, that wasn't in our report. I'm not going to shake hands with the president. <laughs> and so the 18 of us were, were lined up, and at, at, uh, as the president came on down, um, there was a lot of pushing from the uh, press who were taking pictures and such behind us. So that was fortunate because the line got a little bit uneven. Uh, and so when uh, President Reagan came by, I put my hand out to shake his hand in front of this gentleman next to me, and I kept talking the whole time until he moved <laughs> past him. And then uh, he said to me, you blocked me. And I said, no, I didn't. I'm so sorry. I said, if I did, I'm so sorry. I said, I just got so excited talking to the president, of course. And of course, I did block him, naturally. <laughs> I did not want him to embarrass the uh, commission. Sure. By not uh, shaking hands with them, that would have gone viral on the media. Sure. And uh, so those are the fun things behind right. the yeah. scenes. Behind the scenes, then we the, you participate in these uh, events we're, and we're getting that the you inside can, scoop here. Mm -hmm. What forty years? For almost forty years but, later. But so. that report, in yeah. retrospect, looks pretty traditional. Right. Yeah. Sure. In I mean, comparison to what's happening today. I mean, you're you're looking back decades, but these things that you worked on. That's had lasting 40 impact. 40 decades next year. Yeah. Can and, you imagine? And they... I mean, but, 40 but years, right? Yeah. But Four it, decades. But they still stand up. They still mm -hmm. hold up. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, that, that's really 
true conservatism, right? Yeah. Let's <laughs> hope so. The permanent yeah. things. Right, the permanent We're things. We're very interested here in passing that on to the students. Yeah. So you moved from that commission to working on Catholic education. To the Catholic education, right. right. To the one on the United States Catholic Conference to the Committee on Education. So what was, tell me about that. Well, that, that it was very interesting. It was 1984, and I was on there for three years. That's what I was thinking of, the three-year span. And uh, Russell Shaw, who was then the secretary of the um, USCC, uh, and I wrote a paper on moral education in, in the schools, and uh, which would have meant all schools, public schools, private schools, and Catholic schools. And so that um, it was interesting that we had a very difficult time getting that through even a Catholic uh, education commission. Mm -hmm. uh, it had it started then the whole idea of being broad and diverse and such and not offending anybody. So <clears throat> even though we thought we had uh, put our uh, the terms that we mentioned in broad language, uh, it still was difficult because mm -hmm. of the idea that we were expressing the thought that there were norms and standards uh, for education. And, uh, and at that time, even people would say, well, what norms, whose norms, what standards and such. So it uh, was quite an eye opener to me to see that in one sense, I was more free on the public education, but it was under Reagan administration and even not as conservative as it, it, it should have been. Um, that I was more free there to get things in than I was actually even on the USCC. So yeah. that was a, 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 a eye opener to me. Yeah. But but did you? I mean, did you feel like you had the? I guess the kind of impact you wanted to there. Um, not really. Mm -hmm. I felt that I had more impact on the other commission because I was able to get that actually in the statement, which was a uh, parents of the first educators of the children. And, uh, and on the other one, I had more hopes of getting even right. more in than just that rather broad statement and uh, found it, it difficult. However, it was a learning experience and the, uh, many of the uh, bishops and the, were very, very polite, uh, very um, busy people. Mm -hmm. So what happens on such, uh, such groups is that the bishops come in uh, very exhausted from traveling and all they have to do, and they rely very much on the secretaries. And so they are the people who run such large organizations, and they are not, they are not necessarily the most conservative people there are. Right. So that is the main problem anywhere. I guess, because you get, it's the same thing with a State Department or the, you know, as they, they talk about the deep state and such, mm -hmm. you know, these people are there from president to president. Right. It, it's only the people at the top who are only there at the, the uh, will of the president, and then when the next one comes, they get changed. Right. And so they just go ho-hum, you know, we're here, <laughs> and uh, all right, this too shall pass. And right. it does. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that... I don't know how you can break that kind of bureaucracy and reform it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why decentralization is good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's why it's much more important, because you can get somewhat of a handle on the states, right? as opposed to the federal government, which is just too big to impact very well. So you grew up as a, as a Long Island girl. Mm-hmm. Right did, outside New York City. Did you ever, did you imagine that you would spend most of your life in the middle of Michigan? No, <laughs> not at all. Never, never I would ever have imagined that. What, uh, what was it like coming here from, from there? Well, it was a bit of a shock, um, culturally of course, because uh, there was nothing much going on culturally here in the village. Um, however, uh, I came to appreciate the um, what they did have to offer, and then um, with a few other people uh, started founding things so that a few of us got together and we put a library together. There wasn't any library. Then we restored a schoolhouse, and then I uh, helped found the Macosta County Council for the Arts, mm -hmm. and that's still going very much today and has its own building in Big Rapids. And then I directed some theater programs here, and at the church I get very involved with um, the CCD, the uh, Confraternity of Christian Doctrine, the uh, teaching of the students, uh, the catechism. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I 
thought it might be make more of an impact on their lives if I could have them do some dramas. Uh, we, instead of just sitting talking about the catechism and memorizing it or discussing it, uh, so instead uh, I directed plays. And we play. We did Every Man in the church, mm -hmm. and we did some of the medieval um, mystery and morality plays. Oh, fun! And they loved them. They oh, could sure. Get I'm dressed bad. up in clothes, mm -hmm. and and uh, uh, in one of the plays, you know, where they played the the, the virtues and the vices, mm -hmm. and of course they would say, "I want to play lust. I want to play <laughs> envy. I want to play, you know, whatever the more exciting things were than the virtues." Right. And, uh, but but that's how the church yes, taught people. They did. For a they long had time. traveling troops that went through in the Middle Ages around because people didn't read, and so that that is what happened. We, I mean, we may need those again. We need them very much. <laughs> right. In fact, it'd be wonderful if we could have traveling troops. I had hoped to do that in the church that they pulled down, mm. our old church there that I did these plays in. They pulled it down uh, mm. and, and built a more generic uh, brick church. Uh, but I, we had petitioned the state and did get a grant of $10,000 to help us do it. Uh, and that was to uh, let them build a new church. But then we wanted to keep the old church so that we could have the plays in it. Mm. Uh, but of course, sometimes when people um, decide something has to come down, it comes down. Right. <laughs> so. But I mean, you, but, so you, you came here... To, to a little bit of a cultural desert, and mm -hmm. you started you started watering things. I hope so. Yeah. Watered the plants. And, yeah, you know. and you've mm -hmm. and again you've you've had some pretty lasting impact on the coffee. It's been very rewarding yeah. because I now know everybody in mm -hmm. the town mostly uh, here and in the whole area. And uh, Russell and I were also involved in uh, party politics a little bit locally, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, he would go to state, and, and I both would go to state conventions and such, so that, and we worked for particular candidates. Now with the Kirk Center, we don't do any of that because we don't take political positions. Right. Uh, but at that time we did, so it was very exciting. Uh, we knew the governor pretty well, Governor Engler, and uh, his staff, and uh, so that it, uh, you could be more involved here than, it, it was easier than, than in New York. Mm -hmm. And, and New York changed, too, after I left. I left there in 64, and uh, then the 60s came on. Right. And I remember going back to New York, and it was very difficult to even get into the stores because the young people, had many of them had joined Harry Krishner, and they would meet you at the door begging in their sarongs, their orange sarongs and such. And so it was very hard to move about because they were everywhere. And... Um, and it was the kind of beatnik hippie time, mm -hmm. and uh, so I was very happy to be out here raising my children right. rather than in uh, in a city, right? Any place. And they went to the local Catholic school here, St. Michael's, and uh, then for high school they mostly one of them went to the local um, public high school, Chippewa Hills, but the others went to boarding schools, mm -hmm. and uh, then they went off to various colleges, and two of them went to St. Andrews University in Scotland, where Russell graduated from. Mm -hmm. So that was also very nice, and we visited there. We took the Kirk Center over there in 2013 for the 60th anniversary of the Conservative Mind. And then we went with a group of people to Italy in uh, 2018 on the 100th anniversary of Russell's birth. And we uh, did the city of Rome in, you know, the five cities that he does in the Roots of American Order, and mm -hmm. one of them is Rome. And so we went to Rome for that year. And the reason we went there, of course, is because my daughter lives there uh, most of the year. And so we had a contact there to work with. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Russell wrote to me from um, every day from 1962 to 1964. And we met in 1960 in New York when I was speaking on his book, The American Cause. And I was the only female on the panel. And so consequently, I was able to sit next to him at lunch. And um, my brother was with me, and he was a historian, went to London School of Economics and studied history. And so they hit it off immediately. And uh, then that summer was the first ISI summer school, Intercollegiate Studies Institute summer school at Grove City, Pennsylvania for a week. And my brother and I went there and uh, we heard Russell speak. 
So that's how I met him, was first in New York speaking on his book, and then uh, in the summer of 60, and then the whole Goldwater event happened, uh, and I mean, the, the campaign to make him president, and Russell would come to New York often for lectures, and then when I was in college, the last two years, I became his unofficial lecture agent, and <laughs> would arrange all his uh, lectures at various colleges. I was student council president of my small uh, Catholic Girls College, and so that I knew the other student council presidents in, in the New York area, and uh, so that, and because of my work there in, in politics, and, and we brought Young Americas for Freedom back to New York and founded a, a, uh, a group called the Greater American, or Greater, Greater Council, something of that nature, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we had um, meetings there, and so I knew all the other con young conservative people. And so he came often to New York to lecture, and as I say, I conducted those, uh, you know, sessions for, got them together for him. And then he came to our house to visit, particularly my brother, who was uh, a good friend, became a good friend, and my mom too, and my dad. Uh, and uh, so that, um, but then I graduated from college and started teaching and directing plays, um, musicals, and uh, for high school students and going to Columbia to Teachers College there, which was not uh, particularly um, a, a place that I would probably go back to <laughs> again because it was everything that Russell said. Uh, <laughs> because the teacher, uh, it was very, you know, advanced, I would say, progressive. And, uh, but it was interesting to, uh, to go to. And then I started a master's um, in English at St. John's University, and I, 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 I took drama courses at Queens College uh, at the same time I was teaching. And then Russell started, as I say, I was graduated and so from college, and so he started writing me letters and was saying that I was as important as his newspaper column, which he started then five days a week, and so he was going to write me at least that often, <laughs> if not more. And so flattery, I hope he didn't get those envelopes confused. No, no, no. and then so flattery <laughs> will get you everywhere. Well, and sure. uh, so he was, of course, uh, so interesting. There just wasn't anybody else that was as interesting as Russell. Mm -hmm. And my parents uh, already loved him, so there wasn't any problem about the age difference, which right. one would think we might be with parents. But yeah. uh, there wasn't, and I, I always seemed a little bit older than I was at the time, at least intellectually, and so that um, they um, approved when uh, we were married in September of 1964. And my brother was the best man for oh, Russell. Wow. And uh, then he left the next day for, I remember right after our wedding, he left for London for four years uh, mm -hmm. to take, get his doctorate uh, there. So, so that's, Russell just outbid all the other boys, you know? <laughs> I mean, he was just so much more interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, that would be, it'd be hard for others to compete with. I yeah. Think. <laughs> In fact, one of the young men I, I was seeing at the time said to me, you're always talking about him. Why don't you just marry the guy? You know? <laughs> and I said, John, don't be ridiculous. He's, 20 years older, and he said, well, so, you know. Mm -hmm. well. So, um, yeah, so it, it worked out well, and I was always looking for adventure, and so this was an adventure. Yeah. Coming yeah. out here to Macosta, and of course we traveled, so we weren't necessarily tied to just this place, mm -hmm. and um, we, you know, lived when Russell uh, taught different places out in California when he was at Pepperdine. Mm -hmm. We were out there living in Malibu, which was lovely, mm -hmm. for a semester. And then he would uh, teach elsewhere, and sometimes we would go and take the children. Uh, we had four daughters, and uh, it was very funny because when the first daughter was going to be born, he would announce to everybody, the heir, uh, his name was going to be Andrew, uh, the heir, uh, Andrew will be born, you know, next month or whatever. Then the second, that was Monica, and the <laughs> second one was going to be, the heir was going to be born again, and that was Cecilia. Then the third one was going to be born Andrew again, and that was Felicia. And the fourth one, finally, we named her Andrea. <laughs> and my first daughter, Monica, had her first son, and his name is Andrew. Oh, there, there so when you're looking at continuity and looking in historical uh, perspective, uh, if something doesn't happen in one generation, hopefully it'll happen in the next. Right. Well, <laughs> and that's exactly what did happen, yeah. you know? So. Well, you, you not only, I mean, as we talked about, a lot, a, a lot of people have come here. You not only mm -hmm. went other places, but 
you drew other places right mm -hmm. to here I, mm -hmm. uh, on the on the drive here i was i was talking about how because you have been here the kirk family has been here mm -hmm. you've drawn people from, from all, all over the world mm -hmm. to Macosta, mm -hmm. Michigan. Yes, yes, yes. Russell did have a lot of friends, mm -hmm. and he was always inviting people. Uh, when he was a bachelor, it was a little more difficult. He actually did have Buckley here in 1955. His, he was so young, Buckley, that his father wrote to Russell and said, Buckley was 28, Russell was 35 in uh, 1955. And uh, he said, uh, would you see my boy who wants to start a magazine? <laughs> And it was National Review. And so Russell and uh, Buckley went out to dinner at the Blue Lake Tavern, which was then called Doyle Supper Club, and they had lots of Tom Collins. And uh, he persuaded Russell to write for the magazine, which he did for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so that Russell was, and he stayed overnight in the old house, uh, but um, Russell was very um, generous in that way, always inviting people. And in fact, when um, there was a war broke out in Ethiopia years ago, and uh, in 1975, around there, 76, and uh, he was teaching at Hillsdale College, and uh, he called me up one day and said, a young woman from Ethiopia who's a student here has a brother and sister uh, who the parents want to get out of Addis Ababa because their sister, a college student, was just killed in a protest against the government, which was the communist government. Mm -hmm. And so the students were protesting this and they just wiped them out. They just shot Ooh. them all. And, and, and so they were very afraid for their other two students, uh, student, uh, rather children, who were in uh, high school at the time. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to take them out. And so he said, can we take two teens from Ethiopia? And I said, where's Ethiopia? <laughs> <laughs> And so he said, well, I always admired Heli Selassie and, uh, and, and I thought he was just an interesting emperor and, uh, and the whole uh, beauty of, of, the, um, of the, the language that they spoke and, and uh, he knew a lot about Ethiopia. And so I said, sure, we can do that. So they went from Ethiopia, Addis Ababa to uh, Tel Aviv and they took, uh, they were lucky to get out and they took a plane from Tel Aviv to Detroit, and this, this sister drove them here at midnight. These poor two scared kids oh, coming wow. all the way from Addis Ababa, by the two of them by themselves, and visit, get their sister taking them in Detroit and driving them through the night to Macosta to come here. <laughs> and then, then she said, well, I have class in the morning, I have to go back. <laughs> and so there they were just staring at me, these wonderful, beautiful two teens, and uh, so they stayed here for three years and they went to the local high school and they finished high school there and then we got them in various colleges and mm -hmm. such and so they're both living out in Los Angeles right now and they keep in touch. Oh, great. And uh, then we had a family of 10 Vietnamese which was really a wonderful family and uh, this priest friend of ours suggested they came into Fort Chaffee and I remember the day that they called me. I didn't know there was going to be 10. I just knew there was going to be a family. <laughs> and so I went to the phone, and it was somebody, uh, Fort Chaffee, and uh, Russell was sitting in the kitchen reading the paper. And uh, they said, well, you do know that this family has eight children, and there's two adults, so there's 10 altogether. And I said, wow, that's really a lot. You know, I was thinking of beds and where to put them and such. And so I, I said, just one minute, and I talked to my husband in the kitchen until I talked to him. And so I said, Russell, you better put the paper down and just listen to me, because otherwise he would just say, uh-huh, that's fine, go ahead, whatever you want to do. And so I said, I, I said, there's 10, there's 10 of them. And he said, well, actually, uh, Vietnamese are rather small people, so that's really about five. <laughs> So I went back to the phone and I said, all right, we'll take them, you know. So they stayed for three years until uh, they were, it was, it was a wonderful time. Very good for my children because I grew up in New York where there was a variety of people mm -hmm. and uh, nationalities and languages spoken and such, whereas here it, it's pretty um, uh, same. And uh, so that uh, having the children, other children in the house with mine and they're having to share things with them was good, and it was also uh, opening their eyes to other traditions and ways of cooking, even. Mm -hmm. 
they used to make all kinds of Ethiopian meats, which they would burn on the outside and have red on the inside, mm -hmm. like almost like steak tatar. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would cook that in the kitchen, and so my girls learned all of that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had the Vietnamese and the Ethiopians at the same time. And oh, that, that wow. was very interesting because they looked askance at each other and I had to teach them to get along. <laughs> <laughs> like you're running a United Nations. Yes, here. yes. And so, but it made living fun. Yeah. Because uh, they, they, we had lots of parties, as it were. There was always somebody's birthday. With all right. those people. Well, I guess so. <laughs> you know, there were eight children there, and I had four, and so that, you know, we had, and, and let me see, that was the, and then the two Ethiopians were teens, and so, you know, there was quite a uh, uh, time for celebration always, and uh, it was, um, made life interesting. Oh, I, Meanwhile, yeah, Russell sure. came and went with his, uh, <laughs> right. you know, his, uh, uh, and the children would say, is dad home tonight? Because he'd be coming and going. And so uh, I, I said, no, he's, he's, he's not home tonight. And they, oh, okay, put the ketchup bottle back on the table. Because <laughs> he was rather formal and liked everything properly set. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we ate that way when he was here. And when he wasn't, I'm afraid sometimes we, <laughs> sometimes things we fell slipped. apart. Things we had slipped a little pizza bit. or something, oh, you know, well, when well. he wasn't here. So it made an interesting uh, way to grow up. So in 1995, was it a mm -hmm. hard decision to start the Kirk Center? No, it was a very evolutionary, logical thing. The day after Russell died, Governor Engler came to see me and said, um, would you like to come to work in my administration? Because he knew I was political and that I probably needed a job. <laughs> and so uh, he I uh, said, um, you know, that, that he would help in any way, and I said, no, I want to stay here, and uh, we want to continue Russell's work. Uh, there was just so much here with book, correspondence. Uh, uh, we had the seminars. We started in 1973, and then the Wilbur Fellows program from 79, and so we're still going now, and it was just a a uh, very smooth continuity mm -hmm. because I did run that program anyway in the seminars and such and so, but Russell was the speaker. Right. So then I had to get a board of scholars and in different fields and they uh, took somewhat, if anybody can take Russell's place, uh, but there, no one knew all the things Russell knew. So you had to find one historian, one political science, one English professor, one classics, one, you see you had to right. find, and that is what we put together as a board mm -hmm. of scholars. And uh, also because we continued to have the Wilbur Fellows come and they usually needed to be mentored. And so Russell mentored them almost by osmosis Yes. And they were here, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, with him, able to edit some of his things, travel with him, talk to him, and all of that would be gone. And so it meant that these scholars could oversee that to some extent. But we also changed it from uh, young people who were Russell's assistants to um, uh, more uh, graduate students or people who already had their own projects and uh, not completely, but a lot of it. And mm -hmm. so that they were already on their own. They had their mentors elsewhere and they just needed a place to get away to uh, be able to write their master's or doctoral dissertations, you mm -hmm. see. So, uh, so it's changed over the years and, and it continues to do that. We now have a, a director of which I more or less was doing all those years, a director of the Wilbur Fellows Program who actually teaches them twice, a, has a meetings twice a week uh, Wesley um, um, Reynolds is, and he a, a, has a doctorate in history, and uh, he just um, wrote a book, was published in England about coffee houses. Oh, nice. So he fits here very well, and he plays the bagpipes. I've heard him play. Yes, so he uh, often pipes us from the library to the house <laughs> when we have our meals, and it's, it's uh, lovely to walk down the street. Everyone walks behind him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's playing the pipes to come to, to, to have our lunch or dinner. And it's very nice. So that's how Jeff and I founded it um, on, as a 501c3. 
and uh, to continue the work. And, that, and it has grown. We've been very fortunate that we started a newsletter and uh, we were able to continue the University Bookman. Uh, when Russell died in 94 until 2010, I was able to continue that in a print uh, copy. And then after that, it was hard to raise money for both the center and the University Bookman. Right. So, and then internet had grown by that time. And so we still had a thousand subscribers by the time we ended it. But then we went online, then we got thousands more. Right. Uh, and it was free online. And so that um, today is still going very well. And then we also started the, uh, up again, the Burke newsletter. Hmm. We refounded that. And that's also online. And one of our former scholars here, Ian Crow, uh, he, he edits that. And I, I think it's now become sort of just an annual publication. Uh, and people can print it and out if they wish to make it as an um, actual issue. Uh, and a, a publication. So they don't have to just keep it online. They can actually print it out so it's kind of a magazine again. You right. know? Yeah. So we have those two magazines online. And then one of the new developments is that we're, we're starting to have many events more off campus mm -hmm. as our campus. We are starting with Kirk on campus. So mm -hmm. we've already been to Belmont Abbey, to Hope College, to Calvin College, to uh, various places for uh, starting the um, uh, other other groups coming, getting more out, out of our just uh, here, mm -hmm. and and uh, and also we started a, a, a new well an e-letter I guess you'd say uh, once a month that um, uh, we again on online so it, that's helpful to okay. uh, have that because we mail out our newsletters called the permanent things mm -hmm. and we mail that out twice a year. Uh, but that's the only thing we do to connect with readers or donors is that we don't do much other kind of fundraising like that. Uh, mainly as a 501c3 we go to family foundations or other foundations and, and um, try to uh, apply for grants to run our various programs. And uh, the students are paid, they, have a, they get stipends and they get a small house to live in. We have four uh, little houses, cottages here, and so the Wilbur Fellows stay in those cottages. They can be quite comfortable. And they are quite comfortable. <laughs> and then they eat with us quite a bit, dine with us, and they partake of all of our seminars. Mm -hmm. So, it, and they, of course, uh, Wesley twice a week uh, meets with them. So it's a, a good enough, you know, program for them, and they seem to enjoy it. Yeah. And we run that on a uh, semester basis. Uh, we have one in the summer, which is the bigger one, and then in the fall, and then in the spring, mm -hmm. we run the uh, the Wilberfellows program. Do people can do people stay multiple semesters, or is it usually just one? Everything. Yeah. Some people just come to do research. Right now, we have a young man for he's doing his senior paper in college, and he's going to do research here for two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, then other people will come just for say six weeks in the summer. Other people will come for three months in the summer, uh, or in the fall. Or, you know, so we're very flexible. Right. And we try to meet their needs and uh, give them, help them with their research and whatever it is we want. We have a great archivist, too. We, we had a wonderful archivist for 50 years, Charles Brown, who put everything in, in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. uh, but he didn't know anything about computers. And right. so yes. we now have a young man who has a library. No, knowing degree. Charles, I can. Yes, <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> can that. Imagine yes, that. right. He's uh, wonderful and, and uh, uh, really knew Russell's work because he'd been here since uh, before me, mm -hmm. from earlier before the 64. And uh, so that he um, put everything in very good shape, and uh, I mean, for the time. But now we have an up-to-date archivist who went to Indiana University and got a degree in that, and he works out at uh, Idaho at the state uh, college there, and has a very good job, but they allow him quite a bit of time off, and so he comes here frequently. And he's going to get a sabbatical next September, a year from now, and stay for at least a semester, maybe even two. And wow. then we'll really be able to uh, do some work. Cecilia, my daughter, has, is our publications manager, and she is um, very busy overseeing the digitalization of the archive. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's um, extensive. It, it is extensive. Extensive. <laughs> we have uh, not only articles by Russell, uh, articles about Russell, uh, doctoral dissertations about Russell. Uh, we, we have lectures by Russell, uh, the 2,500 newspaper columns that he did for the Los Angeles Times Syndicate are here, and uh, the 25 years of his uh, pay, um, from the Academy in National Review are also here. All of these things need mm -hmm. to be digitized. Right. And most of those things have never been collected right. at all. Mm -hmm. But we do have them now. Right. We have most everything yeah. now, so there's always a few things we find still, but, sure. but we really are very I mean, the, uh, able. The amount of output's pretty impressive. It's amazing. <laughs> it's it really amazing. is. And he was still writing letters every day to you. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, you can imagine. The one thing about Russell is that he did not need to correct a lot, did not need right. to edit. Yes. And so that's why he could write a newspaper column for the Los Angeles Times Syndicate uh, five days a week for 13 years and in um, 100 newspapers a day, five days a week. So uh, he could practically sit there on the typewriter and write some uh, page while he's talking to me. He could, I would run in the library sometimes and I would say I had to tell him something and he would keep on typing as he's talking, you know, answering mm -hmm. to me. I mean, not a long discussion, right. yes, no, whatever, but he wouldn't stop. So he was able to operate on different levels. The uniqueness of Russell is that he wasn't just uh, writing in an academic or scholarly way. He was also able to write as a journalist, mm -hmm. and he was also able to write as a storyteller, mm -hmm. a literary person, and then, of course, do history. And he was able to uh, give lectures of a very high, deep, intellectual level, uh, but then also be able to tell ghost stories before the fire. Yes. And to play games like Snapdragon. So he was multitasked and um, multi-able <laughs> yeah, uh, to do everything. So, so it's been a joy to continue his work. I want to end on mm -hmm. uh, a question. Uh, I want to have you tell me about the dramatic kidnapping you experienced. <laughs> Which Russell had a story about. He did. The he princess did. of all lands. Yes. I, right. want, I want to get the, the inside Annette version oh, right. of what happened. Well, I'm trying to think. That was 1976. It was during the time of the Bicentennial, and Russell was on the state Bicentennial Committee and couldn't go to a meeting and sent me. And so I was returning from that meeting in Lansing when I saw a young woman by the side of the road who was hitchhiking. And it was raining pretty heavily, and so I thought, should I pick her up? And of course, this is way back in 76. I never would have picked such people up today. Uh, but in those days, it was still a possibility. And so I decided, well, I'll just go around the block. And if she's still there, then I'll pick her up. She was. I picked her up. And uh, as soon as she got into the car, I thought, maybe this wasn't the best thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> because it became pretty evident soon that she was um, taking drugs and that she was um, sniffing glue or something like that. Um, not anything too expensive, just very simple. And, uh, but I opened my window on my side so I wouldn't be um, inhaling any of this. And uh, as we went along, she told me her story. And she said that she was coming from the south someplace to go home to see her daddy, who was an Indian, and she said, as was she, and that uh, she, the, the daddy and the brother were not getting along, and she was going to go settle it, and that uh, she needed to um, get there as soon as possible, and that she wanted to go to a place called Pompeii. And so that's how she called, I guess we call it Pompeii in our yeah, thing, right. but it's, uh, they, I don't maybe people in Pompeii, Michigan call it Pompeii. <laughs> and uh, so she was going there. And uh, so um, it became pretty evident soon that she, um, her language wasn't the best. And uh, so I was a little concerned about all this. So when we got near Pompeii, um, on the way from Lansing to Mount Pleasant, um, there was a sign that said Pompeii, and so it was a few miles to the left, uh, to the east. And so I said, well, here we are, I said, but I really got to get home. So I said, how about if I let you out here? 
<clears throat> and then you can continue on with somebody else. <clears throat> so she said, no, no. She said, you're taking me to Pompeii. And so I said, well, I really have a problem of doing that. I said, I took you this far. And so she then pulled up her shirt and there was a pistol stuck in her uh, uh, pants or dungarees. And uh, so I looked over casually and I, I look away casually. I mean, I looked over <laughs> and I saw it and I, I looked away and I said, well, I guess I'll take you to Pompeii. <laughs> and so, so right away I started making plans and so that um, when we would get into Pompeii, my plan was that there must be a gas station there, and so that I would then um, pull over to the gas station and um, tell her I had to go in to get, you know, get the gas and such. And so, and so I said, um, I would get out of the car. I, my plan was, and to get the, just she would assume I had to get the gas, and that she wouldn't stop me from doing that. And uh, so when we got there, there was there were no gas stations oh, at no. all. There was nothing, nothing. There was no town. There was not, you know. And so we had to continue out into the countryside, and there were big ditches on either side, so you couldn't even turn around in mm -hmm. this. And I didn't know where I was going because it was a dirt road, and um, uh, it was getting dark, starting to get uh, toward evening, and. Uh, so my next plan was as soon as we, my, and she kept saying, my dad is going to like you. And that really scared me. And so that um, in order to bond with her, I told her that I was French Canadian, which also had a little bit of Indian. And so I was trying to think of one way to um, be one with her and to uh, be accepting. And I actually would, would, would stroke her shoulder because I had plans when I got there to actually push her out of the car. And so I didn't want her to react too much with that gun because of my touching her. And so I just kept stroking her shoulder and saying, you poor kid, you've had a rough life. And so, um, and as she kept saying, you know, my daddy is gonna like you, I got more concerned about it. And so that when we got to the place where she said, there it is, there it is, it was up on a hill, it was a shack, and I don't know if anybody was in it or not, but um, I determined I wasn't going to worry about that. And so that um, when uh, we stopped at the, on the road, not getting up into the driveway, I said, oh, here, here we are. I said, let's, um, uh, perhaps you can get out here and I'll turn the car around, you know. And so she, uh, uh, she said, no, no, I, I want to get, and I said, well, look here. I leaned over, opened the door. And then when she objected, she was pretty dopey by then from the dope. And so I pushed her out and grabbed the door, closed it, and took off. Mm. And took off. I didn't know if I was going further into the woods or where I was going, but all I know, I was away from there. Right. And I finally got onto a road. I got home, and I called Russell, who was away, and I said, Russell, Russell, this just happened. And he said, Oh, that's a great story. I said, Russell, I'm alive, I'm well, and you're saying it's a great story. He said, oh, I'm so grateful. Oh, thank God you're fine. But it's a great story. And so he made it into his uh, Princess of All Lands. Right. Which, and, which I highly recommend Dr. Kirk's ghost stories. That's a good one. That one's not a ghost story per se. But no, it's a, no. But it's in, a suspenseful story. In, well, in one sense, the way he has the Indian in the story uh, do a, a bit of a dance and then mystical things happen. Mm -hmm. So it turns into sort of a ghost story right. as, as it was just an actual occurrence that happened and then he uh, penetrated into its mystery, and uh, let's say, right. and that he made it more than it was as he did most things. Right. He imbued things with a moral imagination and uh, use the illative senses, uh, we are told, that yeah. Eliot tells us to have. And uh, so he used all those things in making up stories. That was one. Another one of his stories was the one about Clinton, the hobo, mm -hmm. and that was the Long Long Trail of Winding, which is a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. Yes, I and, love that and story. And that's one, that's one also everyone should read. Yes. Two and, best stories. <laughs> yeah, they're very good. Annette, thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. So happy to have you back here after all these years. It is good to be back. It was 31 years ago I sat really? in this room and interviewed Dr. Kirk. Really? Oh my goodness. Over here at this couch. Oh, 
Did you come to interview him, or were you here mm -hmm. as a student? Yeah, I, no, I came to interview him for my um, senior thesis. Uh huh. Um, that I I interviewed Buckley and and then you and came Kirk. back and then I came back right later as a yes. Wilbur Fellow correct well that's yeah. fascinating so so now I've gotten to interview both of you in the uh, same room that's great yeah. many thirty one years apart thirty one years <laughs> apart that's right well that's wonderful thank you so much Alan we really appreciate well, this thank you.